this morning we get to spend our time talking about the topic of wealth. I know that's everyone's favorite, right? Um, you know, it's, it's a topic that Jesus, um, at times he, he, addresses, he, he addresses it uh, briefly in his teaching, and there's other times where he addresses it directly and, and at length. And we've come to Luke chapter 16, and that's one of those places where uh, Jesus speaks directly about wealth at length. And so we're going to uh, examine his words in that this morning. <clears throat> Um, uh, before we get into the text uh, today, I just, I just wanted to take kind of a brief moment and, and speak, speak transparently about, about this interesting intersection of, of financial giving and pastoral salary and, and church finances. And, um, and when I say I want to be transparent, I'm not trying to be deceptive at other times. I'm just saying, you know, maybe... <laughs> share with you thoughts and feelings that I maybe wouldn't share in this setting normally, but uh, um, yeah, so we're quickly approaching the two-year mark of when COVID really began affecting our lives here in, in, uh, in Woodford County, anyway, and I apologize for bringing that up, but um, I, I know we're ready to put that behind us. Um, but two years ago this spring was, uh, it was, it was then that, that our church and churches across the country and across the world faced a situation that was definitely, when we'll go back to this word, unprecedented, right, for, uh, for any of our lifetimes anyway. Felt like we were saying that every week uh, during that spring. But, but for 11 consecutive Sundays in the spring of 2020, our church body did not gather together in this building. I remember back to that. And, and being transparent here, you know, the prospect of ceasing to meet in person for an indefinite amount of time caused me to think about some things that I maybe hadn't really had to think about before, even if, even if thinking about those things briefly, especially from a church finance and personal finance standpoint. Um, could our church survive financially without meeting together for weeks on end? Not a question I had really thought about much before, but was kind of maybe forced to during that, uh, that COVID season there. Uh, what does it mean for me and my family financially, since I'm employed by the church? And that question came to mind. H how, does, how does the employment statuses of so many others who are losing jobs or working less hours or, or earning less revenue, how does that impact those, those other two questions? And, you know, I mean, there were just so many unknowns looking back uh, over those two years, and especially back to that spring. So many unknowns, and looking back now, two years removed as that season progressed and, and, and just looking back, I, I find myself really being humbled thinking again about those questions. Uh, part of me is a little embarrassed that I was even concerned with those questions uh, that came to mind, but um, the, the way our church body has, has continued to, to faithfully give financially to the collective ministry here has been so encouraging over these last couple of years. And, and it's not lost on me that, that in, an, in addition to, to being blessed collectively, that, that I and my family are, are blessed individually as a result of that generosity as well. And so uh, the reason I, I, I wanted to bring that up this morning is, is that I want you to hear my heart in this. You know, I, w I want you to know that as I preach Jesus' words in Luke 16 this morning, 
it's not with an assumption that everybody's greedy and, and self-centered or anything like that. Uh, uh, quite the contrary. Uh, I'm confident we all have room to grow uh, in, this, in this area and be stretched in our understanding and utilization of money, but, but I'm also quite confident that we're already desiring to honor God with our money, even before I've said anything this morning. Uh, that, that's evident to me just based on these past two years, if, if nothing else. So I just wanted to start there and let you hear my heart a little bit. Um, and we'll dive into this. You know, with that being said, uh, uh, let's look at Luke chapter 16. See what Jesus has to say in this area. This is a, a chapter that contains two parables. That's the primary chunk of the chapter. Two parables about uh, rich men. Rich men are at the kind of the center of each story. And as we look at the first parable, uh, what we've got to do is recognize who Jesus is talking to. So for this first parable, you can see it in the first uh, six words in verse one, he said to his disciples. So Jesus is talking to his disciples with this first parable. It's, he's not just speaking to, to, to anyone and everyone. This is to those who've decided to follow Jesus, who have devoted themselves to him. And so with that being said, let's, let's look at the, the first parable he gives, Luke 16. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from my management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and the one who is dishonest in very, a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? If you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other cannot serve God and money. Now, kind of going back to the parable portion of that uh, passage, you may have a couple questions as I read that, and, and if so, you're not alone, because there are many who consider this one of the tougher parables that Jesus gave uh, as, as far as an interpretation standpoint. Um, you know, we think about the details there. It's, it, wasn't, it wouldn't have been uncommon for a rich man to appoint a manager to, to manage his finances and his property. Uh, probably wouldn't have been uncommon for a manager to act selfishly or dishonestly in, in carrying out that role. Um, probably wasn't uncommon for a, a, a master or a boss to fire a manager who acted like that 
once, once his deeds were exposed. So, so as we're reading through the, the opening verses here, there's not really anything out of the ordinary that has happened yet. And, you know, again, when we're reading parables, trying to keep an eye out for the, the, the shocking things, because that's often where we find the purpose of, of what Jesus is saying. So there's not really anything in the first few verses. And, and, and I would even argue that the actions of the manager in decreasing the debts owed to his master, that, that maybe isn't too shocking either. I mean, after all, the, the manager was already acting in his own, best's interest, own best interests previously. Um, that's why he's being fired <laughs> by his boss. So why not continue to act in that same kind of way once, uh, once the verdict has been given as far as what's going to happen to him? And, and one of the questions that's often asked is, whether or not this manager's actions here are commendable. When he calls these debtors in and decreases the amount owed, are, are we supposed to look on that commendably or not? Um, some would argue that, that what this guy is doing is he's, he's simply just slashing the amount owed to his master, you know, and, and, and in essence, stealing from his master, kind of this last stick it to the man kind of thing. Like, you're going to fire me? Well, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make life a little miserable for you. I mean, some would argue that's what this guy's doing. Um, others would argue that, that what he's doing is foregoing the amount that would have been his commission in the transaction. So whatever he was going to make on it as the manager, he just takes that away and says, no, you just pay the principal, that's it. And so you kind of look at that and say, well, it makes sense. You know, he's foregoing some income now, trying to make friends for later. You know, some would argue that's what he's doing. Um, others, others would argue from, uh, from the common practice that, so the Old, the Old Testament uh, law stated that, that, that Jews were not to charge interest to other Jews. And, and so some would say that it was a common practice at this time to get around that and find a loophole by just vastly overcharging. So we're not charging interest, but it's just kind of baked into the original transaction. And, and some would say that, you know, in this scenario, what the manager's doing is kind of, you know, we might look on it in a holy light saying, well, he's basically forcing his master to follow the Old Testament law by getting rid of that overage. And, and, and so... And the honest answer is, we don't know. We're not told. We don't know exactly how we're supposed to view that. In asking that question, we're really looking at it from a, a standpoint of morality, aren't we? You know, is, is the manager doing a moral thing or not in, in what he's doing here, slashing the debts that are owed? I would argue that I don't, I don't think that's really the focus of the parable. I think the reason we're not told is because that, that, that's not really the point, is whether or not the manager is being moral or not. We already know he wasn't being moral because he was being dishonest before, so whether or not he does here, I don't, I don't know if that matters. I think what we're supposed to, uh, supposed to focus on, what would have shocked Jesus' hearers, is verse 8. And I'll read it again. It says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. I think that's, that's where we're supposed to hone in. The, the master, the boss here, he had no reason to look favorably upon this employee that had stolen from him and who he was already going to fire. I mean, that, that's, I think, why it would have been shocking to hear him speaking positively about this manager's shrewdness. 
<clears throat> See, the manager realized that, that his master's wealth was not his own. He knew that. He realized that his time as manager was coming to an end. His, his boss told him. And he realized that once it came to an end, all that wealth that was at his disposal was going to be taken away. And so what this manager is doing is he's looking ahead to that time, which was quickly approaching. I mean, he was losing his job very soon. He was looking ahead to that time and acting in such a way that it would impact the future for him in a positive way. He was looking down the road, eyes ahead on the future. That, that's what the master is commending here. Even though he's dishonest, even though that he's, he's going to be fired, he's looking, looking to the future, acting accordingly, and, and that ought to be commended. That's what the master's commending, and I think that's what Jesus is commending to his followers as well. Uh, like the manager here, we are stewards. We're stewards of what has been given to us by God. The Bible is, is clear on that. The Bible is clear that everything in the world belongs to Almighty God. There's lots of places we can go. Psalm 24 famously says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, or the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Kind of a famous line from Psalm 24. Um, in speaking to Job, in chapter 44, verse 11, God says, Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. You know, not a lot of interpretation needed there. God says, it's all mine. Anything under heaven is mine. Um, you can, uh, the, the principle can be derived from the fact that God is the creator who is responsible for the very existence of all things in creation to begin with. So they are his. He has a claim to every bit of it. So, so we see that all throughout the Bible. It is all God's. He owns it all. And as people created in his image then, and living here on earth, he's given us some of those things to steward in his name, to steward according to his uh, purposes. Um, you go all the way back to Adam and Eve in Genesis. When God created it all, it was his, and he said, here, Adam and Eve, subdue it rule over it. You are to be my stewards of this new creation. Um, you, you see that principle with the promised land. God brought his people to dwell in the land and to care for it in his name, according to his purposes and his ways. They were to steward that land. And, and the principle, again, it's communicated here in this parable from Jesus. We're stewards. We're stewards of all that God has and what he has given to us specifically, we are responsible to steward. So, so if we've got one dollar in the bank, if we've got ten thousand dollars in the bank, a million dollars in the bank, ten million dollars in the bank, I mean the number doesn't matter. Uh, we own none of it. And I know this, you know, I, again, I think maybe I've said this before, it can be very confusing when I look on the bank account and see my name at the top, or my and Megan's name at the top, right? It, it can send a picture that's not totally accurate because it doesn't mean I own it. It just means that uh, I'm a steward of that. I've been charged by God to steward it. We know that everything we have belongs to God, and so then the question is, if we're stewards of it, how do we steward that? What does it look like to be not a dishonest manager, but a, but a faithful manager? 
You know, I, I think it's, it's clear from Luke's gospel so far that, that when Jesus came to earth, he was laser focused on, on the coming kingdom. You know, every, every, everything was, you know, his teaching, his miracles, he was proclaiming the kingdom that was coming. All he did, all he said, all he taught, it's done in the light of the kingdom. And so if our God is focused upon the coming kingdom, then shouldn't we as his managers, as his stewards, be equally as focused on the coming kingdom? Wouldn't that be our, our calling and our role? But man, how often does my vision shift from the eternal kingdom to, to temporal things here on this earth? If, if I and if we are going to, to be stewards of God's resources in such a way that we're carrying out his purposes, then we have to have an eye toward the coming kingdom, right? Just, just like this dishonest manager was looking to the future, and that's what was commended, we ought to have that eye focused on God's kingdom. So that, that has to define what wise spending looks like. That has to define what waste looks like. That has to define what generosity looks like. Not, not any other parameter or, or measuring stick, but an eye on the kingdom. That, that's that's our, our marching orders, our directives, if you want to call it that, when we think about our role as stewards. Um, I you know, for me personally, as I was reading some different things, I came across a statement about stewardship that kind of pushed on that spot in my heart that needed to be examined. And this is a statement by uh, a guy named Ryan Nelson. Um, he said, we often think about uh, taking care of things in terms of keeping them nice. But if your tools, vehicles, food, home, entertainment, and other possessions are sitting untouched, or only being used to make you comfortable, is that good stewardship? Oh man, that's, uh, and, and maybe that's not something with you struggling, that you struggle with. As I said, that's one that pushed on that spot in my heart, but, but it, it's having that kingdom perspective, right? It's not about keeping this object as nice as I can for as long as I can. And it's not about just being wasteful, right? But, but how can I steward it well in light of the kingdom. So, so stewardship can look like a lot of different things in our lives, how that specifically plays itself out. But, but the main question to ask is, am I managing resources that God has entrusted to me in such a way that I'm focused on the eternal kingdom? I mean, and, and that's a convicting question to ask, <laughs> no doubt. But that is the question. That's what it boils down to. Stewards of God's resources have an eye toward his kingdom. And, and after the parable itself, we see kind of some commentary that Luke records Jesus giving. So in verses 10 through 13, Jesus talks about how, how stewardship of resources is, is a gauge of faithfulness in other areas. Uh, if, we're not, if we're not faithful in the area of unrighteous wealth or worldly wealth, then you know, uh, how can we be trusted with true riches, as, as Jesus says here? And there's lots of debate on what that phrase, true riches, means. Um, let me quickly say that phrase is not a promise that if we're faithful with $10, God will give us $100,000. Um, 
There's not, a, there's not a promise there that that's exactly how it's going to happen, even though you'll hear people treat it that way. And they'll say, well, if you just be faithful with this, then God will give you this. And if you're faithful with that, and if you do it right, you'll end up with a whole lot, I promise. Right? I mean, that's, that's how it can be taught sometimes. That's not what, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Our, our, our faithfulness with worldly wealth displays our preparedness for true riches. Uh, that, that could be a, a reference to future service to God in this life. It could be a reference to future service to God in the eternal kingdom. Um, it could be a, a reference to rewards in the eternal kingdom. I, I, there's biblical support for, for all of those different interpretations, and um, whichever one Jesus means, and maybe he means multiple of those, they all connect to that theme of having an eye toward the future, having an eye toward the kingdom. Uh, instead, what worldly wealth is, is it's a proving grounds for, for faithfulness regarding true riches. Right? The, the, the worldly wealth, the accumulation, the increase of the amount of that, that's not the end in and of itself. That is the proving ground for true riches. But we can make it the end goal, can't we? How often the end goal becomes the accumulation and increase of, of worldly wealth. And, and Jesus goes on to say, if we're, if we're serving money, if we make that the focus, we're not able to serve God. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a bold, firm statement. He doesn't say you can't serve God quite as well or that you'll have a little more trouble serving God. He says you can't. You cannot serve money and then expect to serve God. But then the flip side of that is if we are serving God and making him the focus, we won't be serving our money. We won't be able to because we can't. You can't do both. So there's a warning in that, but there's a great promise in that as well, that if we are serving God, then we can be sure that, that we will not be serving our money. And so stewardship is kind of a gauge of faithfulness in, in these other areas. So, so looking at those first 13 verses, we said that they're spoken to followers of Jesus, um, specifically the disciples, but, but all followers of Jesus. We get to verse 14, and the, uh, the audience, the recipients, it shifts. Now, now Jesus is speaking to Pharisees, so those who are not currently following Jesus. And there's another story about a rich man coming in verse 19, but in the meantime, in verses 14 through 18, there's kind of this interesting five verses there that bridge the two stories. And, and in order to, to understand the coherence of this whole passage, it, it's, I think it's important to recognize a common belief that was held um, for sure by the Pharisees at that time. And, and I'll give you the belief and then show you the basis for the belief. Um, but the belief is this. The belief they had w was that wealth is a sign of God's reward or favor upon a person. That you could look at a person who is wealthy and say they're, they're, God favors them. And then, consequently, you could look at a person who wasn't wealthy and said, say God does not favor them. That, that, was, that was one of the beliefs at the time. And the basis for that belief goes back to um, among other places, Deuteronomy chapter 28. Um, I'd encourage you to turn there with me if you want to, Deuteronomy 28. Um, so so th the scene in Deuteronomy 28 takes place on the edge of the promised land. 
So the generation that came out of Egypt that was set free, they, they had doubted God's provision, they had doubted God's protection, and as a result, they, they wandered the desert for 40 years. They had all passed away, and now their children's generation was preparing to enter the promised land. And before they did, God spoke to them these words. So Deuteronomy 28, and, and I'll start in verse 1. God says, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will commend the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your livestock, and in the fruit of your ground, within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season, and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord... And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you shall only go up and not down if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. So maybe we can see why that belief came about, right? You can see why the Pharisees saw individual wealth as a sign of God's favor or lack of wealth as a sign of God's disfavor because I stopped at verse 14, but verse 15 goes on and is maybe twice as long, three times as long, talking about curses for disobedience. And that interpretation is still seen today. We, we, we still see it. Uh, those who proclaim the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, will, will draw on passages like this and interpret them in that way. And, and, and while there's a number of problems with that kind of interpretation, there's one major one when it comes to Deuteronomy 28. And the major one is this. Deuteronomy 28 was not spoken to individuals. Deuteronomy 28 was spoken to the nation. It was not meant to be read individually. It was meant to be read collectively. These are not promises for individuals. These are promises for God's people as a whole. And so what we, what we ought to recognize is let's say, that, let's say that God's people heard this and said, yes, we want to be faithful. We want to be obedient to God's commands. And they did that. The vast majority of the people followed through and were obedient and experienced the blessings of God there surely would have been somebody within the nation who was not being faithful, who was being disobedient, and yet participated in the nationwide blessings. Right? Is that fair, a fair assumption to make? And you can say it the other way, too. Let's say that the people of God 
rejected him and went the other way and were not faithful and were not obedient and experienced the curses nationwide, surely there was someone within the people who individually was being faithful, was being obedient, and yet participated in the curses that were being given to the nation. So there's, there's major problems with reading this individually. So the context of this is, is that a person's individual financial state did not necessarily indicate God's favor or disfavor upon them as an individual. This is God speaking to his people as a whole. But the Pharisees, and, and, and like some today, they, they were mistaken in their individualized interpretation of that passage and, and some others that are like it. And so because of that, Jesus had something to say to them. So if we go back to, to Luke chapter 16, that, that's the context in which Jesus begins speaking to the Pharisees. So in verse 14, he says, uh, it says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So, so Jesus, he, he points out the fact that, that the Pharisees tried to, to justify their standing before God on the basis of their wealth. You know, if I've got wealth, God must be pleased with me. I mean, They'd go back to that individualized reading of Deuteronomy 28. But according to Jesus, their wealth wasn't fooling God. He, I mean, he knew what was in their hearts. You know, while, while they might have looked impressive to people around them, while it might have looked like God was pleased with them to people around them, they were an abomination to God because of their hearts. So Jesus is saying, you know, your, your wealth isn't fooling. Maybe it's fooling people around you, but it's not fooling God. And, and Jesus went on to say that, that a new covenant had come anyway. The, the old covenant upon which they were, they were basing this belief was, was being replaced. The old covenant had ended with John the Baptist, and the new covenant of God's kingdom was being initiated. And that, that's what Jesus is saying there. Now, now for the Pharisees, that, that's blasphemy. That is, that is as close to blasphemy probably as you could get without actually blaspheming God. I mean, in their view, the law would never be made obsolete. Uh, so their next accusation would have been, well, Jesus, you, you must be anti-law and you must be anti-God if you're speaking in this way. And, and before they could even really verbalize that, Jesus answers them. He, he states, well, heaven and earth would pass away before the law would. You know, and he, he then went on to give an example from marriage and divorce to show that he still upheld the truth of the law. So Jesus is saying, I'm not anti-law. I'm just anti how you're interpreting <laughs> the law. This new covenant has, has come. I, I mean, and you, th you know, verse 18 kind of seems out of place, right? The, you got this whole chapter on, on wealth and stewardship, and, and then, you, then you get this one verse about divorce and marriage. And, and uh, you know, we might read that statement and say, why is that even there? 
And boy, there's still lots of questions that I have if we're switching topics now, like that's just one short verse. Uh, Jesus didn't bring up marriage and divorce in order to give comprehensive teaching on the subject here. He's simply giving an example to show his high view of the Old Testament law and the truth it contained. That's what he's doing here. Now, the Bible says plenty on that topic, but here, we're not trying to shift gears. Jesus is saying, see, look, I'll, I'll give you this statement to show that I uphold the truth of the law. So, so if we have to summarize kind of those five bridge verses, Jesus sought to address the common belief that financial wealth was an indicator of God's favor. Uh, and, in, and in pointing out the shortcoming of that belief, he said, I'm not, underli- I'm not undermining the Old Testament law. Uh, I'm just undermining your interpretation of the Old Testament law. And once everybody was on that page then, on the same page, Jesus went on with the second story, uh, again, about a rich man. And this one kind of point blank addresses that false belief that if you have wealth, God must be pleased with you. If you don't, God must not be pleased with you. Look at what he says in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now we could pause right there and hear it how the Pharisees would have heard it. One man that, was, that was God was pleased with, and another man who God was not pleased with. And then look at what happens. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. There's the shock value right there. Then it goes on, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment." But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And boy, how that would be proven true once someone did rise from the dead and was still rejected. Um, but, But again, going back to the shock value of the story, The rich man suffered torment after he died, and the poor beggar Lazarus feasted at a banquet in God's kingdom. That's the shock. That's backwards. I mean, according to the beliefs of the Pharisees, the rich man should have been seen as favored by God, and and Lazarus should have been the one then in torment. That's why he was poor, after all. I mean, that's how they would have thought about it. And yet, in, in this story, their eternal destinations are opposite of what the Pharisees would have assumed. A person's wealth or lack of wealth in this life was simply not a definite indicator of God's 
favor or disfavor upon them. So you think about like, like when Matthew quotes Jesus saying it's difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I, I think this is one of the reasons why. Um, it can be so tempting for someone with financial wealth to assume that, well, because I have that wealth, God must be pleased with me. And, and it can be difficult to convince a wealthy person of their sinfulness before God because the thought can easily be, well, if God's displeased with me, then why do I have all this stuff? Like, why are things working out for me if God is so displeased with me? Uh, and, you know, for me personally, it, it's easy for me to nod my head in agreement when I'm thinking about somebody else in that situation, right? I can, yeah, of course, Jesus, you're nailing it right on the head. I can look at a rich person and fully agree that their wealth does not indicate God's favor or disfavor upon them. But it gets a lot tougher when I turn the magnifying glass uh, on me and, and look at myself. How, how often do I assume that when I receive a financial blessing of some kind that, that it must be because I did something right in God's eyes? Or how often do I assume that, that when I face a financial difficulty of some kind that, that I must have done something wrong in God's eyes? Um, these words from Jesus show that, that I can't consider wealth to be a definite indicator. Now, there may be a correlation there. There, there might be, but it's not a hard and fast rule. It's, it's just not. And, and so the challenge in this, in this passage, again, for those who aren't followers of Jesus especially, but I think for those of us who are as well, uh, is, is to to set financial wealth aside or a lack of financial wealth aside and give an honest look at our spiritual state. Not assume something based upon our, our bank account. Um, and, and, you know, this, this story as well emphasizes the importance of not delaying in doing that because once a person dies, the opportunity to make any kind of change in that regard is lost. Uh, I mean, the rich man desperately, desperately wanted to find relief from his torment, but he couldn't. A Abraham said, you can't, we can't cross from here to there. And, and once, once the rich man grasped that his, that his situation wasn't going to change, you know, well, I got five brothers, go, go, go talk to them. Uh, you know, uh, because we are still living and breathing today, we have an opportunity to, to assess our spiritual state and, and respond accordingly to that assessment. I, I, I don't want us to live, live with a fear of death, but I do want us to live with an appropriate view of it and a preparedness for it as well. And I, and I think that's one of the things that this, uh, that this story will lead us to if we'll allow it. Um, th this story doesn't present the details of the gospel message. Um, but as we'll see as we continue through Luke's gospel, uh, our spiritual state can only be redeemed through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So if we look at it and say, yeah, yeah, the, my, my, my spiritual state is not what it should be. I, I don't have faith in Christ. All the money in the world can't alter that. Uh, we can't buy it. You can't, you know, as this parable shows, you can't buy a ticket to heaven. It doesn't work that way. Um, a lot of wealth can be used for an incredible amount of God-honoring good, but it can't alter our spiritual state. Only, only Jesus can do it.
Only his sacrifice on the cross is able to accomplish that. And so, so the bottom line in all of this, if we can kind of step back and look at chapter 16 as a whole, I think the bottom line is that money can be quite distracting. Wealth can be quite distracting. It can distract us from the coming kingdom. If we go back to the, the parable of the steward, you know, it, it can distract us from the kingdom that's coming and, and, you know, cause us to focus solely on this life. And it can also distract us from our true spiritual state and, and deceive us into thinking that, that we've received favor from God or disfavor from God when the opposite might actually be true. So, so money in and of itself isn't an evil thing. And, uh, what Paul writes is that, as we read earlier, it's the love of money that's the root of, of all kinds of evil. Um, money's a powerful tool. Good, as I said, that when it's stewarded well, when it's utilized for God's purposes and to further God's kingdom, there's some incredible good that can come from it. But when it's stewarded poorly, when it becomes an idol, when it, when it deceives us, regarding our, our true spiritual state, then it can lead to a lot of trouble. So, so you know, may we, may we not judge a person's spiritual condition on the basis of their pocketbook, but may we be faithful stewards who find blessing and joy in managing whatever it is that God has entrusted to us, whether we consider it a lot, whether we consider it a little, to be faithful in it and to steward it to his honor and to his glory. I think that's the driving point of, uh, of this section of Luke's gospel, that money can be deceptive and it can be very distracting, but there's an opportunity in it to, to, to honor God in, in, uh, in some pretty incredible ways. So I hope that can be our takeaway from this this morning. Would you stand with me? Let's, uh, let's come to God, and, and we need, I think we need to ask him just for, for wisdom, for discernment uh, uh, in this area, especially in a culture that shouts anything but what we've just <laughs> talked about from Luke 16. Well, let's pray together. God, we come to you in... Uh, uh, I think we, if we're honest, I think we recognize that, that everything is yours. It, it's, you are creator, you are sovereign, you are almighty. Um, we just, we can't lay ownership claim to, to anything on this earth. So God, in light of that, would you, would you, would you help our vision, help our focus? We want to uh, be looking ahead to the, to your kingdom, to, to be, to be living all of life in, in, uh, in response to that, but, but, but especially as we've talked this morning about this area of wealth and finances. Give us that vision to, to like that shrewd manager, be, be looking ahead to the time that is to come. And in addition, God, I, I pray that, uh, that wealth or a lack of wealth would not, would not distract us regarding uh, our spiritual state, God, that, that uh, we wouldn't just make that automatic connection and assume in our lives or anyone else's lives that, that that's a definite indicator. God, we want to have a, a, a vision of wealth, an understanding of wealth that, that comes from you, that is in line with you and your purposes. And 
I just pray that you would help us all to grow in that, that we'd individually be growing in that and, and collectively as well, even as we think about our church body and, and uh, the finances of, of this church, we want to have that, that same kind of vision. God, help us in that. God, we give you praise that, that you provide us with anything. We know you don't have to, but you do, and so we're thankful for that. God, as we continue our time of worship now, may we, may we truly recognize that, um, that you are our all, that, that all that we ought to search for is found in you, not anywhere else or not in anything else. And so we pray this in your name. Amen.